You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 125. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. Thank you to everybody who has recently signed up to receive the podcast via email. You can do this at Warrior Priest uh, WordPress at WordPress. Otherwise, all of those who have signed up and subscribe and follow me on Anchor FM at The Warrior Priest, thank you so very much. Thank you to all of the new supporters of the podcast. I truly appreciate your support and your encouragement, and I appreciate you and what you also bring to this podcast. Thank you. Today then, I would like to discuss something that I don't know if I've ever talked about before, but since I am suffering from it at present, I thought I would discuss it because if you're anything like me and you get involved in something that you love, something that you are passionate about, you may have overdone it a time or two in the past, maybe very recently. Over the past weekend, I overtrained. Not only did I overtrain, but I overworked at the same time and pushed my body and my mind and my emotions to the breaking point where by Monday, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to move. I had no grip strength because my hands and my forearms and my wrists were inflamed and sore. My mind felt like I had smoked an immense amount of marijuana. (laughs) I felt high. I felt stoned all day long. I couldn't hold a thought, couldn't focus, felt like I was floating through life. And emotionally, I was flatlining. I was suffering from compassion fatigue. I didn't want to be around people. I could not go to the gym. That was out of the question. I could barely get out of bed on Monday. And it was all because there were things that I had to do over the weekend. I had to preside at a wedding. There were over 250 people there. I had to preside at a baptism the next day. There were dozens and dozens of extra people at the baptism. Then there's the entertaining and the sitting outside at the back table with guests. There's teaching classes, both for my students and the students at the other gym. And I kept pushing and I kept pushing and I kept pushing because that's what I do. Head down and grind. Prove that I'm stronger. Prove that I can go longer. Prove that I have better stamina and cardio. Prove that I'm more technical. Prove that I can go longer and longer and longer and never break down and never quit. And so I did. (laughs) And now it's Tuesday or Wednesday, actually. There we go. That's how out of sorts I am mentally. I don't even know what day it is. So this all happened over the weekend. It's Wednesday and I'm still tired. I'm still recovering. My hands and my wrists and my forearms are still sore. My mind is still foggy, as I just demonstrated. And emotionally, I'm just kind of floating through life. I'm not really engaged when I'm talking with people. I want to be. I want to be present. And I am in the sense that I can't focus. And emotionally, I'm just kind of meh. So I am present because I just don't have the energy to think about the past or the future. But is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to overtrain? Is it a good thing to push yourself past your limitations? Is it a good thing to ignore your body when it's telling you to rest? Is it a good thing to ignore your heart and your mind when they're telling you, we don't have any gas left in the tank. 
We need to withdraw. We need to sit down and be alone. We need to rejuvenate and hit the reset button and refuel. And the only way to do that is downshift or just put the car in park and let it idle. You don't have to always be in fifth gear. You don't have to hit 60 by the time you get to the end of the driveway. But again, if you're anything like me and you are engaged in the things that you love to do, you're with people that you're passionate about, it's really difficult, especially if you live a disciplined life and it is a primary focus for you to live a disciplined life, to practice self-control. If that's the path you're on, if you're constantly pushing yourself to move forward, to grow, to get stronger, to better yourself, to put to death the person that you were yesterday, then training can actually become a negative. It can become hurtful. It can actually destroy the foundation you've built for yourself. As I've talked about before, the primary reason I train is to maintain my sobriety so that I can be a good husband, a good father, a good pastor, a good coach, a good teammate. But when I overtrain, I'm unable to be any of those things for the people around me. I'm incapable of feeling the way that people need me to be present for them emotionally or intellectually or even physically. So the very thing that has served as such a great benefit to me the past six and a half going on seven years, when I don't check myself, when I don't check my schedule, and acknowledge, okay, I got a lot coming up in the next week that's going to demand a lot from me, both physically, intellectually, and emotionally. So I need to be mindful of how I'm training, how much I'm training, how much energy I'm putting into these different areas of my life. I need to pay attention to my primary responsibilities, which vocations demand the most of me and need me to show up and be present, and which don't. Are there people, are there things that I can kind of deprioritize, move down the list to fifth and sixth position? Because these other people and these other things demand my top priority. Um, yeah, just the top priorities in my life. Or do I treat everything as it's my primary priority? Everything is in the top three. Well, that's not helpful. It's like when I triple and quadruple book myself. I do this all the time. People will ask me, hey, are you available at Thursday at two o'clock to talk? Absolutely, I'd love to. And then I get home and I tell my wife, hey, uh, just so you know, mark it down. On this day at this time, I got this phone call. And she then says, didn't you already say that you had a meeting on that day at that time? And then so-and-so stopped by and they said that you told them that you were gonna be around the house on that day at that time so that they could stop by and visit with you. And I was like, oh, that's right, I did do that, didn't I? That's also a side effect of living present, living in the present, is forgetting to write stuff down to remind yourself that it's great to live in the present. It's great to be present for people and be there for them when they need you to be. But it's not so great when you have to call them and say, hey, um, about Thursday, I, I may have triple booked. Can we meet an hour later or an hour earlier or reschedule? I don't do it on purpose. It's not malicious. But at the same time, when people are depending upon you to show up for them and you make that verbal contract that you're going to be there and then you tell them, hey, I'm sorry, I have to deprioritize our meeting because these other things, I kind of agree to these things too. To me, that's the same as overtraining in the sense that you're not keeping track of yourself. You're not keeping track and prioritizing your commitments and therefore you're not paying attention. You're at a level of disengagement 
with your schedule and with your time and with your energy output that you end up triple, quadruple booking yourself, whether it be in your interpersonal relationships, at work, at the gym, wherever it may be. And instead of accepting your limitations, instead of accepting that I'm stretching myself way too thin or I've overextended myself, I'm overtraining, if you're anything like me and you're committed to the things that you love, the idea that you would quit or take a day off to rest, it's, uh, it's kind of abhorrent, I'll be honest. It, it, it upsets me, actually. I get upset with myself for even thinking about taking a day off. That's, again, one of my greatest strengths is my self-discipline and my drive to be excellent, but it's also one of my greatest detriments and weaknesses for the same reasons. So I found this article from July 6th of 2017 about this topic. It's called How to Know When You Are Overtraining and Why It Should Be Avoided Like the Plague, written by someone who goes by the moniker of Dragon Lady. So if you're out there, thank you for writing this. How to Know When You Are Overtraining and Why It Should Be Avoided Like the Plague. What do athletes and fitness fanatics share in common that can be their greatest asset but also their ultimate downfall. Perfectionism and obsession. When this leads to overtraining, it, it's detrimental. It's destructive. You want to be training more than everyone else, working harder than everyone else. You put in the hours even when your body is crying out for you to stop. It's a fine and difficult line. So how do you know when you are overtraining? How do you know when you are doing more harm than good. As I've talked about as well on the show, in 2020, when everything was going down and the virus of unknown origins was floating around, I started to suffer physically, mentally, emotionally about April, May of 2020. My solution was train harder, train more, sweat more, double and triple down on self-discipline really force yourself to get in there and mix it up. That's how I deal with stress. That's how I deal with the aches and pains. Well, come Christmas Eve, 2020, turns out I had been ignoring my body, which was trying to tell me I had an eight and a half millimeter or eight and a half centimeter stone lodged in my ureter. And as a consequence, I ended up with a kidney infection and I almost died on Christmas Eve night. Why? Because my solution to my body telling me that it's in pain is, well, I'll just train harder and I'll just train more. I'll sweat the pain out. Not good. Obviously, not good to ignore your body. Not good to ignore the warning signs. But that's my perfectionism. That's my obsessive personality traits. It's kind of, it kind of goes hand in hand with addictive personalities like my own. We tend to overdo everything. I was watching uh, an interview with a recovering addict who pointed out that just like myself, when he met someone and fell in love with them, that's it. She's the one. She's my soulmate. She's the only person on earth that I ever want to be with. She's my everything, my sun, my moon, and my stars until the next one comes along. And then she is, insert description here of being the only one. And I did this for a number of years from the age of 17 to 24, really 25, 26, actually. I would meet a, a young woman, fall in love with her, 
go head over heels to show her how much I loved her. 100% commitment. Everything's going the same direction. I eat, sleep, and breathe this young woman. And then as happens, we fell out of love for different reasons. I was gutted. And then another young woman came along. And it just started all over again. It's the nature of addictive personalities that we are either 100% in or zero. So if I like someone or I like something, I'm 100% in. Body, soul, mind, everything's in. And if I don't, if you are boring to me, you will get 0% of my time and attention. So in the past, if you hurt me, if you betrayed my trust, for example, I treated you as dead. You were dead to me. I would not, as they say, piss in your throat if it were on fire. But if I liked you, if I loved you, everything that was mine is yours. My time, my attention, my possessions, everything is yours. You don't even have to ask for it. I will give it to you. I will assume and anticipate your needs and rush ahead of you to open the door to do that thing for you. Some might call this codependent. (laughs) Some might call this smothering and unhealthy. And they would be correct, actually. It's part of recovery is accepting the fact that there is no such thing as a soulmate. There is no such thing as this is the only person who could ever make you happy. That it's not healthy to love someone so much that you base your entire life and the meaning of your life and your schedule around this person. And that you throw yourself at this person so completely that you lose your own identity. But we do this the same way when we train. I love jujitsu and Muay Thai. I love it more than anything else that I've ever done in my life. My wife asked me that question last night when I got home from teaching. How did it go? I go, it went the same way it always goes. Well, I mean, was it good? Was it great? Was, you know, did anything exciting happen? No, it's just what I do. This is what I do. I've been doing this almost seven years come November. It's just what I do. Do I love it with all my heart, soul, and mind? Is it extraordinary? Extraordinary, sorry. Yes, of course it's extraordinary. But it's also ordinary because I do it every day. And also, I was just kind of having fun with my wife by not showing her how much I enjoyed it. (laughs) But I was also very relaxed because I had just gotten home from doing the thing that I love. It's my obsession. It's my drug. It's my addiction. I can't imagine life without Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. And I cannot imagine my life without those things almost at the level that I cannot imagine life without my children. That's how much I love Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. Is that healthy? When it's kept within sane, sober boundaries. But when it's not, it can become destructive. Just as treating my children as if they're God or worshiping my children as if they're God, to be more specific. If I live my entire life for my children, and I do not allow my children to be individual, their own human being, if I'm constantly trying to control their future because I've written the script for their life already and they don't get a vote, my love for them, my obsession with taking care of and parenting my children to be the parent that I needed my mom and dad to be for me when I was growing up, well, that can quickly turn into a smothering parental ethos, a way of behaving as a parent that simply crushes my children's free choice, their creativity and curiosity, their, their freedom to be people and to develop 
according to their personality traits, to have their own adventures and go on there and, and seek out mystery and seek out answers to their questions without their mom and dad just being right over their shoulder saying, oh, 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 don't touch that. That's hot. Or, oh, you need to, you need to see this person. She's definitely the one for you. You're caretakers of your children's life. And that's it. You're not their guard. You're not their prison warden. You're not their principal. You're their caretaker. Your children were given to you as a gift and your responsibility is to care for them, but not to dominate them and crush their curiosity and their creativity, crush their personality under yours because you're living by proxy through them. And so going back around to where I started this, this rumination, I started jujitsu and then Muay Thai to be a tool for my sobriety so that I could show up and be sober for my family and for my friends and other people so that I didn't try to write a script for their life and try and dominate them and crush what made them unique. But when I overtrain, when I become obsessed and that perfectionist inside of me starts to weed his way out, all of a sudden I start writing those scripts again. All of a sudden I start trying to control outcomes again. All of a sudden there's only one right way to execute the technique and that's my way. That's not good. Of course it's not good. So yeah, I want to train more than everybody else. Yes, I want to work harder than everybody else. Yes, I want to put in the hours even when my body cries out for me to stop. The problem is I don't know when to stop sometimes. I don't listen to myself. I don't listen to my wife. I don't listen to other people who say, hey man, you need to take a day off. You ever think about going on vacation? Well, I would go on vacation, but I would only go on vacation so long as I know there's a gym I can train at while I'm on vacation. Because why would I possibly want to go on vacation and not train? That makes no sense. <laughs> That's like a foodie going on vacation where there's no good restaurants to eat at, or in my case, no taco stands to eat at. So here are some of the symptoms then of that perfectionist, obsessive overtraining mentality. Number one, you're performing worse, not better. A mistake that many of us are guilty of, been there, done that, got the rash guard, is when we were training full pelt and all of a sudden we see ourselves getting weaker, our performance getting worse. This happened to me. Like I said, I have no grip strength right now, which in jujitsu, grip strength is kind of uh, important. Likewise, though, I've been punching so hard in Muay Thai and overtraining that my knuckles are bruised and my hands are bruised and my wrists are inflamed because I've overtrained in Muay Thai and I've been doing too much pad work and I've been hitting the pads too hard, which in the ego side of my mind is like, yeah, you hit those pads hard. You hit those pads like Liam Harrison hits pads. You're a monster. You're a Ramon Deckers kind of fighter. But my hands are saying, hey, could we... um." maybe go at like 10 or 20% when we hit pads this time so that we can heal. And the ego is saying, shut up hands, shut up weakness. This is how we actually exercise the demon weakness from our body. We hit and kick even harder. Yeah, but now I can't hold a bottle in my hands. I can't take a drink from a glass without having to like focus on my grip strength. I can't roll in jujitsu like I normally do because my grip strength sucks. So really, is training at full pelt that beneficial? No, actually it's not because I'm getting weaker. Also, it shorts out your reflexes. 
This is something that we don't really take into consideration about overtraining that I had to learn about early on from my coaches, which is when you train too much, you actually end up shorting out your reflexes because your brain is overwhelmed by too much outside stimuli, too much information is coming in at one time repeatedly and your brain just kind of goes numb to it. And now you're not learning and your brain isn't working in tandem with your body to translate the technique out into like this physical thing. And so you're just going through the motions. You're there, you're physically there, you're mentally engaged, but it's just things aren't gaining any traction like they normally do. So what's your first instinctive reaction then when you're performing worse, not better? Well, you're not working hard enough, as I said. <laughs> and so what's the response? Well, obviously I'm not working hard enough. I must work harder. I must train more. We shoot ourselves in the foot and everywhere else on our bodies. To reach our prime, of course, we must constantly push ourselves to be better, to push past the pain. Pain is just weakness leaving the body, as the meme says. But what if it's not? What if it's your body saying, hey man, we need to stop. We're in pain. This isn't good. I made a joke two weeks ago. My uh, coach and I were, were rolling and he caught me in a head and arm joke, but he didn't have it exactly right because I was defending it the way I'm supposed to. And so he was applying pressure and he kind of jokingly said, are you going to tap from the pain or not? And I just said, I don't tap from pain. I'm not going to tap from pain. You're going to have to get this right or I'm not going to tap. So he got it right and I tapped because he was choking me unconscious. So then afterwards we were joking and I wrote on the whiteboard next to the mats in our gym, champions don't tap to pain. It's a joke, obviously. So then this is in the morning when there's nobody there. So all day Friday, Friday night, and the Saturday morning when I came back in the gym, everybody who walks into the gym sees this written down on the whiteboard. Champions don't tap to pain. And my senior instructor for the intro to jujitsu class points out how dumb that is. I'm like, it's a joke. It's like, I didn't write that seriously. I wrote that. I didn't write it seriously. Because we tap to pain all the time. Arm bars, knee bars, heel hooks. We tap to pain constantly in jujitsu. That's the point of jujitsu is to inflict pain upon another person to the extent that they say, stop, stop, I tap. It's a joke and it's meant to be ironic, right? But not knowing who wrote that, the senior instructor was like, well, that's just dumb. We tap from pain all the time. And I'm like, I wrote that as a joke. And then he laughed because he understood the point. But that's why I had written it because in the moment when I'm rolling with my coach and we're having fun, I'm saying, I don't tap to pain, man, right? I'm too strong. I'm too tough. I've been through too much at this point to tap to pain, which is true. But also I'll tap to pain all the time. Like I said, you armbar me, I'll tap to that. You get me in a bicep slicer, I'll tap to that pain. I'm not going to eat that. Why? What's the point? Get injured so I can't roll anymore just because I want to show that I'm a tough guy? No, it's not worth it. You listen to your body in those moments when your body says, this hurts and it hurts a lot. So let's stop and reset and start over. But then when your body says that to you outside of training, when your body says, let's take the night off, let's rest today, let's refuel, let's get reinvigorated, we ignore it because we think to ourselves, hey man, you're just not working hard enough. You're being lazy. Discipline equals freedom. Jocko says so. Well, that may work for Jocko, but I bet you even Jocko Willink takes a day or two off here and there. You have to. You can't train the same way every day at the same intensity with the same energy and not expect your body to break down, not expect your mind to stop grasping the principles of the technique. And emotionally, you're just not going to be able to show up for people because you're exhausted. And so you have to, as she says, you have to be a bit clever about this then. 
You are flesh and bone. Your most prized possession is your body. And only you can look after it. No one is going to ultimately do that for you. So the signs that you need to slow down are this. These. Your performance has been increasing and improving. You increase your training and you find your progress is steadily slowing down and reversing. So you can test this. Take half a day or a day's rest and see the improvement. And if there's none, it may be a sign of a deeper problem or an injury. Or that, in fact, you need more rest. And if there is no overall improvement after a week, then you do need to question this seriously. Don't be like me and wait most of the year before your body says, we're going to die now since you're not going to slow down and stop and you're not going to pay attention to the signs. We're just going to kill you (laughs) because that's all that's left to us. The only option left for us to stop you from overtraining and pushing yourself past the point of breaking is to literally kill you. Don't do that. Don't wait until your knee blows out. Don't wait until you separate your shoulder. Don't wait until you have an emotional or or mental breakdown. Because then what good are you to yourself and to others? The whole reason that, again, I do MMA is so that I can be a better person. But if I can't do it because I overtrained, well, then I've defeated the entire purpose for why I did it in the first place. This is that fine line that she's talking about. And I think those of us who are passionate about mixed martial arts, those of us who are passionate about the people in our lives, passionate about our work, we're always on the edge. We're always teetering on that fine line between self-destruction and self-improvement. And that's just something that we have to accept if we're going to pursue something that we love and that we're passionate about. The things that burn brightest in our heart can consume us if we allow it to go unchecked. So constantly do sobriety checks, constantly test to see whether or not you're listening to your body. Are you reading the signs? What is your body trying to tell you? What is your heart trying to tell you? What is your mind trying to tell you? Is it saying, slow down, take a half day, take a day? Or is it saying, no, there's like, there's something really wrong happening right now. And you need to go to a doctor. You need to get x-rays. You need to get checked out. If this is more than just some CBD cream can take care of, this is more than just taking a nap and and eating a couple meals is going to take care of. There's something seriously wrong here. So pay attention to it. Again, the good Lord built us in such a way that we're kind of self-regulating. And so when we overdo it, our body is designed to sound the, the alarm, sound these warning bells to say, hey man, pay attention. This is happening, especially when it's happening inside of you and you can't just like physically see the cut or the bruise. Don't get so obsessed, so singularly focused, monomaniacally focused on what you're doing. And justifying what you're doing by saying, but I love what I do. How could it be bad for me? Well, I love ice cream. But if I ate a gallon of ice cream a day, eventually I'm going to be so morbidly obese, I'm not even going to be able to do a jumping jack or walk a block. And I'll probably be dead at 42, to quote Tom McDonald. But I still have ice cream every once in a while because I love Tillamook ice cream. I love it. (laughs) I love it so much that... I know that the amount of calories I'm burning on a daily basis allows for me to indulge every once in a while and have a bowl of ice cream. 
Now, I also have an addictive personality, which doesn't allow me to have just a bowl of ice cream, which is a whole nother set of self-discipline um, things that I have to address. That the ice cream is like the telltale heart. It's like there's this body buried under the floorboards and I can hear the heart beating at night. It's like, I know that ice cream's in the freezer and it's lonely. It's sad. You ever, you ever notice that about ice cream? Once you've opened it and had a bowl of ice cream, how sad it is to be left alone in the, in the, in the freezer. It just wants to be with its friends in your stomach. This is why I can't have ice cream sandwiches because I'll eat an entire box of ice cream sandwiches in one sitting. I don't, I don't have any shame about that. I love a good ice cream sandwich. Schwann's ice cream sandwiches. Oh my gosh. Schwann's ice cream sandwiches. They're just, mm, they're like drugs. And I can't just eat one because again, he's all alone in my stomach. I need to have his friends go down and visit him. That's again, that addictive personality trait kicking off. And so I have to regulate myself. Luckily, I have five children who are more than happy to eat the rest of the ice cream before I ever get a second bowl, which aggravates and yet also endears them to me that they are performing a service for their father, sparing me the trouble of having to eat a gallon of ice cream <laughs> all by myself. But I laugh about it because I accept that, yeah, it's just a part of my personality. I'm an obsessive compulsive person, whether it's jujitsu or ice cream or my children or anything that I love to do. I want to do it all the time because I love to do it. I love to be around certain people and I want to be around them all the time, but they have lives and they need to live their life separate from me. If we don't allow that room to breathe and we smother them or we smother the thing, we overdo the thing that we love to do, it's very easy to burn out. And familiarity does breed contempt. If I ate ice cream every single day, I would get sick of eating ice cream and then I would actually have spoiled one of the great joys of my life. If I trained at full tilt every single day in jujitsu and got injured so that I couldn't train jujitsu, I have deprived myself of one of the great joys of my life. It would diminish me as a person to not be able to train regularly in jujitsu and Muay Thai. And yet that same drive, that same love and passion, that same obsession can very quickly blaze out of control and consume us altogether. So the thing that we love in the end can destroy us if we're not careful and we don't set up uh, sober, healthy boundaries around ourselves to protect us from ourselves. You know, when the Beatles saying love is all you need, no, love is not all you need. You need love within boundaries. Because love, passion, can easily overwhelm and destroy you and the thing that you love. It can destroy relationships so fast. Because you're so needy that you can't allow the relationship to breathe. There's no trust there. There's no respect. There's no honor. There's just need. I need you. I need you. I need you. No, you don't. You need to be comfortable being alone with your thoughts. You need to be happy with yourself. You need to learn how to appreciate and love who you are before you try and love someone else. And if you can't do that, in my opinion, you shouldn't be with other people because you're just going to be needy and you're always going to live in fear that they're going to leave you. And that makes you weak and it makes you pitiful. But when you're comfortable in your own skin, so to speak, when you're happy with yourself to, you know, a greater or lesser degree, when you know that you are capable of loving and being loved, 
when you assess your own self-worth, when you have value to yourself, then you can be with other people and be comfortable being with them, but also not being with them. You can appreciate the time that you have with them and respect that time, but then you can also appreciate the time when you're away from each other because that builds up that yearning and that hope and that excitement for when you're together again. But it starts with being satisfied with yourself and who you are as a person, as an individual. It's like being alone in the car with your own thoughts and not having to have a podcast on and not having to have music on and not having to distract yourself by texting or calling someone. If you're afraid to be alone with your own thoughts and your emotions, how can you be alone with somebody else with their thoughts and emotions and the thoughts and emotions they stir up in you? How can you be intimate with someone physically, intellectually, and emotionally if you're not even comfortable being intimate with yourself? So maybe before you dive into that relationship, maybe before you allow him back into your life, you shut the door to him and figure out how to be comfortable being alone with yourself first. Because you may discover that you don't need him, that he was a drug for you. And that what you really need to do is find someone who is comfortable and happy to be with you, but also to be apart from you. So back to the the article. Generally speaking, if you see that you improve after this rest, you know you need to reassess your training regime. Regime? Regimen. Regime. Why? Because you've been overtraining. Number two, your coaches and close training partners are telling you that you are overworking yourself. Naturally, you're not going to listen to the average Joe. If you're the type to overtrain, then I assume your level of activity already far exceeds theirs. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to take advice from a potato. And so you're always going to look like you're working too hard by their standards. Exactly. But when your coach starts warning you, well, it's in their best interest to keep you safe and keep performing at your peak. They will be familiar with the signs and have seen it many times before. A good coach should be like a mirror. You can't see yourself. You can't correct yourself if you can't see what's wrong. Your close training partners will likely know you and your training behavior well. They know you. They also know you well enough to tell you to your face. Listen to them. Sit your ass down. Exactly. Who do you trust? Who do you trust to tell you the truth? Even if it's the harsh truth, the brutal honesty that you desire, that you say you desire anyways. Who is it that's willing to be brutally honest with you and to simply tell you the facts? Listen, I see what you're doing and I respect your work ethic but you've been slipping lately. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can see it in the output. I can see it in your face. I can feel it when we train. You're not at your best. Is there anything going on? Is there anything you want to talk about? Have, you know, is there an injury that's nagging? Like, is there anything that's basically kind of pulling you down and not allowing you to, to perform at your peak? No, I'm great. You know, everything's good at home and I don't really have any really bad injuries. I, you know, I feel fine. But if you see something that I'm not seeing and I'm not injured and there's not trouble at home that I'm running away from or there's some existential crisis I'm going through that I'm trying to avoid by training too much. Maybe I'm overtraining and I'm not paying attention to the signs. My grip strength isn't the same. I'm not as quick as I normally am. I'm getting caught in things that I haven't got caught in for a long time. Maybe listen. Maybe sit your ass down and accept the fact that it's okay that you're not Jesus. You're not a God or a demigod. 
You're not Hercules. You're not Samson. You're just an ordinary human being and that's good. And like anybody else, you need to stop and rest from time to time. If you want to be at your best, you have to rest. There we go. Somebody put that on a t-shirt. If you want to be your best, you have to stop and rest. Next, small injuries like cuts, grazes, and bruises are taking longer to heal or are not healing at all. This has always been a problem for me is that when I get injured, I heal really fast. I broke a toe, trained through it, it healed in no time. If I get cuts, they heal in no time. I do have a lot of scars though. Maybe that's the sign for me. But if your body is under stress and you're not giving it appropriate time for rest and recovery, it's going to show. The cuts, the bruises, they're not going to heal as fast. I got knee in the face in jujitsu a couple months ago. My nose looked like it had been broken sideways. I had an enormous hematoma. It started at the bridge of my nose and went over my eye to my forehead. It was enormous. It was literally the size of an egg. Everybody who saw it said, you need to go to the ER. You obviously broke your nose. I looked at it. It was S-shaped. My nose looked S-shaped in the mirror. I was like, damn. Jacked my nose up for the seventh time. (laughs) Couldn't train. Wanted to train. Wanted to keep training. Wanted to ignore the pain. But it was obvious that uh, I should not continue to train because I was afraid I had cracked, uh, or I had, my partner had cracked my ocular bone or that I had broken my nose again. Um, whatever it might be. So on the way home in the car, I was looking at my nose in the rear view mirror and I took my two thumbs and I put them up in the, in my eyes. And I just put pressure against this hematoma, this edema. And I just drag, drug my fingers down my nose and pushed the blood out of that area. And then I got home, I treated it with my CBD and all the other stuff that I have to decrease the swelling. And two days later, didn't look like I, anything had gone wrong. It hadn't broken my nose, hadn't cracked my orbital bone. That's what I was thinking of. My orbital bone, that's, what I, that's the name of it, not the optical bone. Orbital bone. Hadn't cracked it, I was fine. Went back to class the next day. Coach asked if my nose was broken. I said, nope, just huge hematoma, big old edema under the, under the skin. Pushed it out with my thumbs, treated it with all the creams and salves and all the other things that I take to reduce uh, inflammation. I was good to go. But if I had broken it, would I have trained through a broken nose? Actually, I've done that before. I cracked my nose when I was a blue belt and I trained through it. Separated my shoulder, taped my arm to my chest, trained through that. Broke my toe, like I said, taped it up, trained through that. I am a terrible example of how to slow down and take care of yourself. That's why I'm giving you all these examples. Not to brag about how tough I am, but to point out how dumb I am when it comes to injury. Because the thought of taking a week off to rest is abhorrent to me. Taking a month off, that's anathema, man. That's like punishment. What what did I do wrong? I'm a bad example, which is why I'm reading this today. Because I am a hard learner. You need to give your body an appropriate time to rest. And not just your body, like I said, but your mind and your emotions. Because your body's ability to heal itself will be massively affected by overtraining. So this also counts for your body being able to protect itself. You'll be far more likely to catch infections, which will slow your recovery process even more, such as staph, ringworm, other fungal infections, right? 
thank God I've never gotten staph or ringworm or any other kind of fungal infection. Super grateful for that because every summer ringworm goes around, humidity and sweat and bacteria is all over the place. It's easy to pick it up off the mats, especially if you don't have a really good skin flora going on. It's really easy to catch infections and you get sick if you overtrain. I see it all the time. In fact, I'm sure that I've gotten the flu and head colds, not just from my teammates who are sick, but because I had compromised my immune system by overtraining and it couldn't fight it off anymore. So the same thing, if you keep getting sick, if you keep getting ringworm, for example, or you keep getting infections or you keep getting skin rot, that's another sign that your immune system's compromised because you're overtraining. The ego loves to brag about how tough it is because it inflates you. It presents you as a hero, a demigod, someone who is beyond the pale of normal human beings. And all of us, of course, want to be more human than human. We all want to be heroes, legends. We want people to talk about us when we're not around, like we're mythological characters. So of course we train through injury and broken bones and separated shoulders and all the other stuff. Of course, we're going to try and get back as quickly as possible after we've gotten an infection. However, you're not a legend. You're not a myth. You're not a hero. You're not a demigod. You're just somebody who's dumb and short-sighted and doesn't accept that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And that if you keep doing this, your infections are going to go from bad to worse. You're going to be sick all the time, which means you're not going to be able to train. And then you're going to lose stamina, cardio, muscle tone. It's all going to go downhill from there. When if you had just taken that week off to rest and recuperate, you can get right back into the gym. Good as new. Generally speaking, you will be less able to combat diseases. That's not a risk you want to take. A little cold you might have shrugged off with a tissue will leave you in bed like a zombie and your body will force you to take the rest you need if you won't do it yourself. Exactly. Next, you will also feel weaker. Muscles that you are working or overworking will not be recovering properly. Just a number of things you should be aware of and be aware of when reassessing your training habits and realizing when you're training too much. And the big one for me, your sleep is suffering. Your sleep is suffering. Either you find that your body is under so much stress or in pain that you are struggling to fall asleep or you have fitful sleep or the quality of your sleep goes down. Tracking bands such as jawbone are useful indicators. Note I say indicator. None of that technology will give you super accurate reading. But a tracking band, for example, such as your jawbone, is a useful indicator of how much deep and REM sleep you're getting as well as the total. A persistent lack of deep sleep, for example, may be a bad sign. You might even knowingly be sacrificing sleep to train. Or, in my case, sacrificing work to sleep in the day so that you can train harder at night. This is massively counterintuitive. How do you expect to recover post-training when you're sacrificing sleep to train? If you don't, then ask yourself, what exactly was the point of that training session? And along with sleep, you are training so much you're neglecting your nutrition. If you're training so much that you do not leave yourself enough time to make sure you have the right amount of nutrition, you know it will be detrimental. All that extra activity will require extra calories. Combat training, especially, is explosive, not slow and steady. 
So you need high volume, density of health, healthy calories prior to training to perform at your best. As an example, I was so tired Sunday night, I couldn't eat. And then Monday, I was so tired, I didn't have the energy to fix meals for myself. So what did I do? Just wandered around the kitchen and just grabbed anything that was edible and shoved it in my face and went back to bed. Was it nutrient dense? Thankfully, yes, because of the way that we operate in my home. We don't have junk food around. So most of the stuff that I'm going to grab a hold of is nutrient dense foods. But I'm not preparing the meals for myself because I don't have the energy. I'm not cooking hot food for myself because I don't have the energy. So I'm just shoving stuff in my face regardless of what it's going to do for me and whether it's going to help my recovery or not because I'm too tired to care. This is naturally then most prevalent prior to competition. You are anxious to train as much as possible to outwork your opponents. You're probably in the midst of a weight cut, so you might fall into the trap of thinking better fit in another training session rather than another meal. Now, how silly does that look written down? As the meme says, those who think they have no time for healthy eating will sooner or later have find time for illness. Those who think they have no time for healthy eating will sooner or later have to find time for illness. Exactly. I have seen phenomenal fighters lose due to overtraining. I've seen them lose focus and deteriorate. That will not be you. I've got you under my wing. You know the signs. You know not to overtrain. Because hopefully now you can clearly see when you analyze these symptoms how much damage you're really doing. You're moving one step forward in order to move one mile back. You're using a bucket with a spear at the bottom to empty your rowboat of water. You're only making yourself sink faster. At least now you won't, will you? So what should I do about my training then? As far as restructuring your training goes, it could be that you have fewer workout sessions a day or a week and you space them out differently. Or it could just be that you use that slot of time in a different way to analyze or lightly drill technique or teach in my case. To study other fighters, it's all about adapting to what your body and your mind needs. Physicality alone is not what wins the fight and not all practice needs to be focused on the physical. Sometimes you need a break from training and everything to do with it, if only for an hour, so that you can be refreshed. Perhaps you are the kind of person who benefits from a quick siesta or afternoon nap. Amen to that, brother. These are all things you need to experiment with to get the balance right. But ultimately, overtraining is a fool's errand. And that's the end of the article. Overtraining is a fool's errand. Because in the end you will lose. Every time you will lose. If you overtrain, you will lose. Physically, intellectually, emotionally, it will catch up to you. It'll short out your reflexes. You'll not be able to sleep well. You'll not be able to eat well. You'll suffer from infections and illnesses and diseases far too often. You'll be weaker and slower. Technique isn't going to stick in your brain. You're not going to be able to translate the technique into physical motion. Your relationships will suffer because you're fatigued. You're not able to be there for others. You can't show up for yourself. All of these things are signs, symptoms of overtraining. And for those of us who are perfectionists or at least obsessed with the things that we love and the people that we love, 
there's always the danger, like I said, of allowing that fire to rage out of control and consume us. So as much as is possible, prioritize structuring your training schedule in such a way that it is always optimized for the best possible results for you, whatever that looks like for you. And this is, I think, a key aspect that she doesn't quite address, but alludes to when you're training with champions, when you're training with other people that are as focused and passionate as you, it's really easy for that voice in your head to say, Hey, um, everybody else is at the gym. They're all training and they're your friends. Don't you miss them? Don't you want to see them tonight? And look at the way they're training. How come you're not going as hard as they are? How come you're not sweating as much as they are? How come when they do the technique, it's so crisp and clean and smooth? It's almost effortless. But when you do it, you struggle. It's that comparison game that destroys us. Especially when it's people that you love and respect. You want to show up for them. You want to be as good as them. You want to get the compliment from them. You want that encouragement. And so, of course, you're willing to do almost anything to achieve that, to get to the level that they are at. But envy is a greed-eyed monster, man. Coveting what your neighbor has, it's a monster and it will consume you because they're on their own path. They're doing the same thing as you. They're involved in the same activities as you, but they are not you. They're not the same age as you. They're not the same weight. They're not the same ability level. They're different than you. That's why you respect them. That's why you want to emulate them. But remember, just because you want it doesn't mean that you should do it. Let them do their thing. Let them pursue their perfection, their passion. Let them indulge their obsession. And you do you. And recognize you're not them. And you don't need to be like them. And if they don't respect you for that, then they're not your friends to begin with. And you shouldn't be around them. The people that are true, that are real, are the ones who recognize you're doing your thing and we're doing it together and we're each on our own path. And my job is not to encourage you to be like me. My job is to encourage you to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And sometimes that means I got to step in front of you and go, hey man, you need to sit your ass down and take a rest because I'm worried about you. I think you're here too much. I think you're training too much. You're always going hard. You don't take rounds off. You don't downshift. You don't pull back on the throttle. So what are you doing, right? Take the night. Just sit on the, sit on the sidelines and take notes. Be an encourager tonight. You want to be a good partner? Just walk around and, and point things out and go, hey, man, um, I don't know if you realize this, but when you pulled out that one technique, watching it from outside in that moment, you got your guard passed because you do this thing all the time. And I just noticed it now. Or you just help the coach out. Offer, right? If you have any experience, any time in the gym, apprentice yourself to one of the coaches. Ask if you can be a training dummy. Ask if you can be a part of their class. And you want to be, you know, you want to expand your knowledge. You want to learn from the other coaches. You want to be more active and more involved in the gym, but you just don't have the energy or the wherewithal to come to more classes. That's cool too. For me personally, um, the best way that I learn is by teaching. So being able to be a test dummy, a technique dummy for the senior instructors in the classes, and then walk around and help the students with the techniques, it helps me when I then go and train and I'm the student. 
because it allows me to process the technique more objectively from the outside looking at it rather than trying to figure out in the moment or after the fact of like, what did I do? And asking my trading partner, like, why did I fall into that trap again? And they explain it. But in order for me to go away and teach that same thing, it kind of gets better traction in my brain. And that's kind of how I do it. And that's also how I find the balance then between training and teaching. There's just nights that I know if I train tonight, tomorrow I'm going to be wrecked, but I can teach tonight and I can still be on the mats and I can still be doing the thing I love and I can be around the people I love. I just won't be rolling. I won't be sparring. Tomorrow I will though. And like I said, people that give you a hard time about that, they're not your friends anyways. Don't hang out with those people. Don't train with those people. But the people who see you doing that and recognize and you tell them, hey man, I love being here. I love being around. I love the the whole atmosphere of the gym. I love jujitsu, Muay Thai, but I am this old and I have these responsibilities in my life and I have to do this later and I can't just throw myself into training tonight because I've got these other priorities. I've got these other responsibilities I have to attend to. So you just figure out, hey, I'm going to watch some video. I'm going to sit down with some buddies and we're going to just watch a video and just do technique rather than rolling tonight. We're going to hit pads rather than sparring tonight. I'm going to roll with the white belts rather than all the killer competitive purple and brown belts tonight. Whatever it may be. There's, there's a multitude of ways to still be on the mat, still be in the cage or the ring, still train without having to injure yourself from overtraining and let your obsession burn you alive. So listen to the signs. Pay attention to what your body's trying to tell you. If you feel like intellectually you're not getting traction, if you feel like emotionally you're just avoiding people and, and, and interpersonal reactions because you just don't have it in you to give them anything emotionally. Those are signs that you're overworked, that you're overtraining, that your perfectionism has turned into an addiction. And as an addict, speaking from experience, I encourage you to listen to that voice. And if you take a night off, if you take a class off, again, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. There'll be more days. There'll be more time, God willing, so that you can be on the mats. So don't treat the signs as a nuisance to be ignored. And when your body's trying to tell you something, don't train harder. Don't be like Donovan and end up in the hospital with a kidney stone and an infection. Learn from my bad example. You don't have to train through broken bones and injury. You don't have to rush to get back on the mats after you've been sick. It's okay to not compete at every tournament. It's okay to not take every fight that's offered to you. Enjoy the fact that you get to do what you love with people that you love doing it with and that that is its own reward. That's why we do this in the first place. It's not for the medals and the trophies. It's not to get our hand raised. It's not even to have our teammates and coaches tell us how awesome we are. It's the experience. Like I talked about, it's not getting to the peak that matters. It's the struggle through the valley and climbing up the slope of the mountain. That's what matters. Being on the mats, being in the cage and in the ring. That's why we're here. But that doesn't mean then that we have to spar at 85% every time it's time to spar. We don't always have to spar. We can do technique. We can do open-handed sparring. We can hit pads. We can watch video and talk about it. We can just sit around and enjoy each other's company. All of that's a part of this. But we have to broaden our focus then, broaden our perspective and recognize sparring is not the be-all end-all of why we're here. Fighting with each other is not 
ultimately why we are here. We're here because we're trying to better ourselves and in the process help other people get better as well. But we can't do that if we're not here. We can't do that if we're injured. We can't do that if we're burned out and we've overtrained. And so avoid it like the plague. And that being said, thank you again, as always, for listening today. Thank you for your support of this podcast. And I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.